A second really important event, the temptation of Christ. Last time, if you recall, we were uh, studying the, the baptism by John, the baptism of Christ, where there was heard God's voice from heaven, uh, God's voice saying to Jesus, You are my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And Luke records then the Holy Spirit descending like a dove. So in that passage, we see uh, the three members of the Godhead that we spoke about two weeks ago, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And Christians have historically referred to the oneness of God, the one true God of the Bible, yet present in, in three eternal personalities, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We learned those three distinct persons is one God is referred to as the Holy Trinity. And the Holy Spirit then we saw, descended upon Jesus like a dove had gently settled upon him. And in the next chain of events now, we can appreciate how these Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, complement one another. Matthew records, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Matthew 4, verse 1, you can find that. So we know the next thing chronologically that happens, according to Matthew, was then he was tempted by the devil. The Gospel of Mark gets even more deliberate, where you read Mark write, immediately the Spirit impelled Jesus to go out into the wilderness and then to be tempted by the devil for 40 days. So taken together, there's no misunderstanding Uh, the sequence of events here in Jesus' life. There's no interruption between the baptism and his subsequent temptations. After God the Father asserts his pleasure in his Son, the one whom he's well pleased, immediately afterwards we see why God is so pleased. He's tempted for 40 days in the wilderness. We observe why God is so pleased because Christ was perfectly obedient. Perfectly obedient. Throughout his life he remained sinless. But although there's no pause between these significant events, for some reason the writer Luke, he chooses to insert uh, one of Jesus' uh, genealogies here. If you noticed. Why is that? Now there are a number of proposals. Uh, Some of them we covered last Christmas Eve actually, and then Christmas Day if you were with us. Uh, If you were wondering why I skipped over the last portion of chapter 3, it's because I recently preached through both of these genealogies last Christmas. And uh, just last December, on Christmas Eve, I taught Christ's lineage as it's presented in Matthew as being Christ the King. The very next morning on Christmas Day, I preached Christ's lineage as our Savior as it is presented by Luke. So if you want to review those, you can go to the church website. They're there. But to summarize, Matthew provides Christ's ancestry as he defends Christ's rightful uh, uh, seat on the throne of David. Christ is the rightful heir to King David. All the way back to when uh, Israel was formed at Abraham. Uh, Compared to that, Luke provides Christ's lineage as it goes back all the way to Adam. So often in in Luke we hear of Christ referred to as the Son of Man. His lineage is traced throughout all humanity, all the way back to Adam. 
Luke wants his readers to know that, that Jesus is that one everybody's been waiting for. Remember the anticipation with John the Baptist and, and, and all these things that we've been studying. Luke wants his readers to know this is the one. This is the one we've been waiting for ever since the initial fall back in the garden. He's promised, uh, the pro- he is, Jesus is the promised descendant. He is the seed of the woman, Genesis 3.15 if you remember, who has come to crush the serpent's head. And because of the effects of sin, the fall in the garden, that cast a shadow, that cast disarray, not only to Israel, right? It's not just Israel who's affected by all of that. It's everybody. The whole human race needs to be saved. The human race, since Adam, it's in chaos. That's why there was a worldwide flood, because of all the disobedience, all of the evil. So Jesus Christ is He. He is the one who will conquer that which we all have in common, folks. Inherited sin. We all have that in common. So, so Luke provides Jesus' lineage as He is the Savior of the entire world. Not just Israel. Not just uh, sitting on the throne of David, but sitting on the throne of God's kingdom. Amen? All of humanity is fallen We're all by nature, Ephesians 2 verse 3, we're children of wrath. In the natural state, we are children of wrath. You and I, you could say we're terminally infected with sin. Terminally. It's the reason that you struggle with those lustful thoughts. It's the reason that that anger overtakes you. You ever thought to yourself, why is that? Why do these things go through my head? Why do I get so angry? Sin's a reason you desire what belongs to others, the wealth and possessions you didn't earn, ones you don't own. It's that sinful tendency inside of us, that that fleshly tendency to disobey all of God's commands. And, And we see in our passage today Satan, he can act as a tempter. He can be a tempter, but he's not our primary problem, folks. He's not the main problem. Our flesh is the problem. We are the problem. It's an internal one. It's not an external problem. It's who we are. Our corrupt, sinful nature, it's the reason our political system's in shambles, folks. It's sin. Nobody wants to take responsibility for past mistakes. Uh, greedily, everybody wants to take from others what they have. There's little to no hesitation, folks, of increasing our standard of living while turning around and handing the bill to our children. No hesitation to that type of behavior. All the while, everybody, as you know, if you've spend any time on this planet, whether you're watching TV or whether in your own household with your family and others, we're always ready to point the finger, right? It's always somebody else. Everybody else is the problem. We like to point the finger. That's, that, that's how our flesh behaves. That's how our sinful nature or our humanity behaves. We desire stuff for ourselves. If we don't get it, other people are the problem. They're the problem. It, and it's, an, it's a basic principle that's really important for us to uh, acknowledge and to recognize so that we can combat the flesh. We can actually do battle 
with this sinful flesh. Everyone points the fingers. When caught in a trespass, what did Eve the woman do? She pointed her finger at the serpent. When God approached Adam then, what did he do? Well, it's the woman. Then he said, who you gave me. Wow. Pointed at the woman first, then he pointed his finger at God. You ever catch yourself doing that? It's not me, it's always somebody else. You and I have had our fingers pointing at others ever since the beginning. Ever since the beginning. Do you want to know the secret, folks? I'm talking, not talking about the secret on TV or uh, with Oprah. The secret of understanding our problems, all of your problems, all of our problems, all of humanity's problems. Folks, because our hearts are regenerated, we've been made alive to God by the Holy Spirit. We've experienced rebirth, spiritual rebirth. The Christian understands something that the unregenerate, unsaved sinner does not and cannot understand. If you want to point your finger at the root cause of the world's problems, the first place that you would start is right in the mirror. We're the problem. We are the problem. Sin is the problem. Temptations are the problem. Our Lord's brother James says unequivocally in his letter, this from chapter 1, verse 13, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone, but each one, means everyone, each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin. When sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. And just in case anyone would like to dispute with James on some of those topics, he adds another warning. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Don't be deceived. You're the problem. The problem isn't outside of you. It's inside of you. The unsaved, unregenerate, what what Scripture refers to as the natural man, can't accept he's the problem. Will not accept he or she is the problem. In his or her pride, everybody else is always the problem. Anyone here has ever done any amount of prison ministry? Or worked in a prison? Or I've visited people in prison, as many of you probably have. Everybody's innocent, right? Everybody's innocent because it's not their fault that they're in there. Either it was the way they were raised or society didn't benefit them in the way they could have, the education wasn't good enough, or they were framed. They're out, the unregenerate man always points the finger at others. I tell you folks, when I run into a problem, the first finger I'm pointing is right at myself. Look at self First, the Bible assures we are guilty. We've all failed. We've all broken God's laws. Scripture says all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's all. Wait a second. All except one, folks. All except one. There is one who came in the flesh, born into humanity through a woman, who succeeded in conquering that which we all have in common. Jesus wasn't merely sinless. God's sinless. 
Jesus is God. He's not merely sinless. Jesus, he was victorious in the flesh. He lived in the flesh. He was God in the flesh. So in human flesh, he experienced every temptation, every type of temptation, categorically, that we have. So Christ our King, he understands. He understands the weakness of the flesh because he experienced life in the flesh as a result of the incarnation of God. Speaking of Christ, Hebrews 4 verse 12 assures us, we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are yet without sin. He knows. Jesus experienced, he reigned victorious, where every single one of us, starting all the way back to Adam, have failed. Every single one of us has failed. This is the reason Luke traces Jesus' ancestry all the way back to Adam. It's a human problem. The problem of a sinful human race originated in Adam, and death has reigned over humanity ever since. Ever visit a cemetery? You will eventually. Unless the rapture comes first. It's infected everybody. The wages of sin is death. So let's read together after that cheery note. Luke 4, verses 1 to 13. And we won't finish this passage today. There's just a whole lot here. There's so much. But I hope you'll be convinced by the time we leave that Jesus had to conquer that which we all have in common. We all hold in common. Verse 1 of Luke chapter 4. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led around by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days, and when they had ended, he became hungry. So we got a physical temptation here, lust of the flesh. And the devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone. And he led him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said to Jesus, I will give you all this domain and its glory, for it has been handed over to me, and I'll give it to whoever I wish. Therefore, if you worship me, it shall be yours. Here we have the material temptation. Lust of the eyes. Idolatry. Jesus answered him, it is written, you shall, not, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And Satan led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple and said to Jesus, if you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands they will bear you up so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. So here we have a spiritual temptation. Prove who you are. That's pride, the pride of life, boastful pride of life. And Jesus answered and said to Satan, It is said, You shall not put your Lord God to the test. When the devil had finished every temptation, he left him until an opportune time. Now, don't make a mistake as you first look at this uh, of thinking there were only three temptations in this whole 40-day uh, period. The context here that contained in Mark indicates Jesus was tempted repeatedly over the entire 40 days. 
There are many temptations. These are just a sample. In fact, the usage of the Greek by Mark, it's called a present participle. It means continuous temptation. The way Mark writes over these 40 days correctly indicates that he was continuously tempted. How is that possible? Well, folks, aren't you? As you go throughout your day and the things that you see and the, and, and the things that you hear and the things that you watch and the things that you think, are you not continually tempted? I don't know of any 40-day period or four-hour period that we've gone through that we haven't been tempted. Everywhere we turn, temptation, temptation, temptation. By what 1 John 2.16 says, is all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life. He adds, it is not from your Father, but it's from the world. The world is passing away, says the Apostle John, and also its lusts. But the one who does the will of God lives forever. Who did the will of God? Continuously, repeatedly, only Jesus. The life is in Jesus. It's the only place we can find life. Human flesh, it can be tempted in the wilderness. Some might incorrectly think that, you know, people in ancient societies, those old societies with like stone homes and, and no television, all those other things, they didn't have the internet. They didn't have all that other stuff. They probably weren't regularly tempted. That's wrong. Wrong. We, we think to ourselves, it's so much worse today. You know, we have so much more to be tempted by. You know, the church was in Corinth. It was tempted in every way that we are. Paul wrote to them and said, every way that is common to man. The manifestation of the sins may change, but it's common to man. And they all failed. Jesus was tempted in every manner that we are, at least categorically, according to Hebrews. He prevailed. Everyone else failed. That verse earlier in Hebrews that we read, it it doesn't indicate necessarily that, that Jesus faced every single individual type of temptation that we have. Obviously, uh, he didn't experience the exact detail of everything that we experience today. But categorically, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the vainful, boastful pride of life, he, he conquered all of it. Every fleshly enticement, everything that we've experienced, everything that every age of humankind has experienced, he experienced it. He came in the flesh. He felt it. You know, this ought to amplify, folks, how important it is, how essential it is that we defend that Jesus Christ was God who was born of a woman, conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit. And how all the fullness of deity dwelled, all the fullness of God dwelled yet in bodily form, in the flesh. If God didn't come in human flesh, then he didn't experience the temptations as we do. He, he then wouldn't have been tempted in every manner that we are. He wouldn't have reigned victorious where we have failed. 
You know, in such case, Jesus wouldn't even have suffered and died in the flesh if he hadn't come in the flesh. He wouldn't have been the perfect human sacrifice, the sinless sacrifice that, that made our atonement possible. God's justice would not have been satisfied, so no propitiation, no satisfaction of God's justice on sin if Christ had not come in the flesh. That would have been a really big problem, folks. Really big problem. I just came across this quote this morning. I'm going to read to you from Hebrews as I was going through this. Hebrews 2, verse 14. Therefore, since the children share in the flesh and blood, meaning the children of God, he, meaning Jesus himself, likewise also partook the same, and through death he might render that through death he might render powerless him who has the power of death, that is the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. For assuredly, for assuredly, he does not give help to the angels, but he gives help to the descendant of Abraham. Therefore, speaking of Jesus again, he had to be made like his brethren in all things, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of people. So, see how essential that is that he came in the flesh? For since he himself was tempted in that which he also has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. It's no wonder the Apostle John, as he's writing his book, his letter, 1 John, he's so adamant, folks. He's so insistent. Here's a man, probably late teens at the time, we don't know exactly, but he's probably the youngest of the original 12. And, and he laid his, his head against the chest of the flesh of Christ at the Last Supper. He touched with his hands. In fact, you look through Scripture and you see it repeatedly, the importance of that. Peter talked about how they didn't follow cleverly devised tales when they spoke uh, uh, of his majesty. They proclaimed what they saw, what they touched with their own eyes. Christianity, it isn't based on, on story. It's based on eyewitness testimony of those who were with him, those who touched him. In 1 John 4, 2, John writes, By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus, meaning coming in the flesh, any spirit that doesn't confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, of which you have heard that it is coming and is now already in the world. So it's the spirit of the Antichrist that doubts the incarnation, denies the incarnation of God. You know, cults and false religions around the world, they thrive, they grow while denying the incarnation of God. You know, if Satan can convince the world, if he can deceive the world into believing that Jesus wasn't truly God, that he was just a man, not really God, then his crucifixion means nothing. It was just another good man dying. That's all it is. But the spirit of the Antichrist might also confess in some manner that Jesus was God, 
but didn't come in the flesh. That was some of the roots of, uh, or was rooted in, in some of the Gnosticism that you read about, that, that all flesh is evil and that only spiritual is good, so they denied that uh, Jesus suffered in the flesh. Instead, some say he, he only appeared, like a type of phantom. That, that error, you, you might have heard the word docetism. It, it, that means an apparition. It was very common in the early church. We don't see it manifest in America uh, in the same way today. But uh, in such a scenario, if Jesus didn't exactly or, or, or precisely experience in the flesh what we've experienced, he didn't achieve victory over our temptations. We don't have a high priest that can sympathize with us. And, and that docetism, Serapian was, was the name of the guy who, who promoted that. He was a, a bishop of Antioch. And that was condemned as a heresy at the First Council of Nicaea, 325 A.D. The church has historically always had to deal with this problem. Is Jesus God? Is he man? The answer is yes. He's not one or the other. He's not only our substitute in death. Jesus Christ was a perfect substitute in our life. A life offered in perfect obedience to the Father and then offered for all sins, for all time, for all who will believe on the cross. That's why God says, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. We can't achieve this. Perfect obedience, we we can't do this ourselves. If you think that you can be pleasing to God apart from the obedience, the righteousness of Christ, without first being clothed in the righteousness of Christ, if you think you can just do stuff on your own to become pleasing of God, you're gravely mistaken. We can't do it. Folks, the spirit of the Antichrist is sowing confusion about Jesus, who he was, concerning our identification with Christ, either in his sinless life or or in his uh, uh, crucifixion and his resurrection. But living in human flesh, as he truly was the God-man, Christ's temptations in the wilderness, they were genuine, they are bona fide temptations. Real temptations. And, And you might have heard from one source or another, there is considerable debate about whether or not Jesus could have sinned. That question is out there. Or was he what they call impeccable? Unable to sin. Meaning he could not have possibly sinned. In short, we know that Christ is in him all the fullness of deity dwelled in bodily form. We've determined previously, even in Luke chapter 2, Jesus is fully God, fully man, without distinction. He's not half God, half man. He is fully God, fully man. God can't sin. Folks, you're going to have to ask some questions to determine this, where you fall out on this. I'm going to lay my cards out. God can't sin. Jesus could not have sinned. God can't sin. Christ is holy. He is impeccable. He is perfect and righteous. God permitted Satan to tempt Christ. 
to afflict Christ even. God permits that, like with Job. I can imagine Satan rather enjoys afflicting God's precious saints. But to say that Christ could have sinned, that implied that at some point, somehow, God's perfect eternal plan of salvation that was orchestrated before the foundation of the world possibly could have been compromised. No. No. Job said to the Lord, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. For God to potentially fail in his mission would make God less than God. God doesn't fail. Now, this doesn't suggest in any way that that Jesus didn't truly experience the temptation in the flesh. He did. We know that he experienced the temptation. Of course he did. In our weaknesses, uh, he had weaknesses in the flesh. But temptation in itself is not sin. Jesus never sinned. Until one is enticed and carried away by his own lusts, then schemes to fulfill the lusts, at some point you cross into sin. Christ's deity never crossed that line. He's perfectly righteous. And I'm not even you know, sure we can possibly fathom the depths of all of this. Other than the fact that God completely understands what we go through, Christ completely understands what we go through, and he empathizes with our weaknesses. He knows. He knows. Because he experienced our weaknesses in the flesh. And when the holy and sinless Son of God bore our sins in his body on the cross, he tasted the pain, he tasted the anguish of dying in the flesh for all of us folks. It was real. It was real. He died for all that we have in common. Jesus conquered in the flesh. 1 Corinthians 15, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. And the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, that's a quote. If you've got, you got a Bible that has uh, the New Testament with capital letters every so often, that means that it's a quote from the Old Testament. And here, this is a quote by the Apostle Paul from the scroll of Isaiah, where Isaiah writes concerning the Messiah in chapter 25, verse 8, he says this, He, meaning the Messiah, will swallow up death for all time, and the Lord God will wipe tears away from all faces, and he will remove the reproach of his people from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. And it will be said in that day, Behold, this is our God, for whom we have waited that he might save us. This is the Lord, Isaiah writes, for whom we have waited. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. They've been waiting too. Written 700 years before Christ. You know, we discussed a couple weeks ago sin, how God is going to punish every sin appropriately. Every sinner will justly receive uh, according uh, to what he's earned in the flesh. Unrighteous deeds done in the flesh. We learn that some, some sins are more offensive to God than others. Not everyone will suffer in the same proportion or to the same proportion in hell. 
one hell, people will suffer proportionately according to all that is written in the books of Revelation 20. Every evil deed, every sin recorded in the books. Every name that is that isn't written in the Lamb's book of life. Meaning they haven't trusted in Christ as their Savior. They don't believe that He died for their sins. Died as a substitute. They haven't trusted in Christ. And they'll have one thing in common. They'll be eternally judged for their sins. Because all have sinned. There's no margin for error, folks. No margin for error. You must be perfect. Even sinning just once separates you from God. Even just once, from a holy and righteous God forever and ever. You might be saying to yourself, do I believe that? The only sin necessary to separate humanity, sinful man, from a holy and just God, and then cast the world into chaos, is one act of disobedience and eating the fruit. Separation. Holy God from sinful man. All it takes is one sin. Complete separation and judgment by God. And and that's what we all have in common over our lives. Disobedience. It's habitual. It's repeated. uh, Usually deliberate in some way or another. It's willful disobedience. And Christ, He is the perfect. He's the antidote to our disobedience. Because He was attempted in every manner that we are. Yet without sin, he remained obedient, not merely for those 40 days in the wilderness. Christ remained obedient his entire life. Perfectly righteous, blameless. And each of us here needs to be clothed with his perfect righteousness. Clothed with his perfection through trusting in him. Before I close, I'd like to take just an opportunity as we talk about this, and we move on through this passage in the next couple weeks. But there's a fable, a myth that's been propagated in the church. We swallow it like we do so many hook, line, and sinker. But it's a myth concerning sin, categories of sin, types of sin, enticements of sin. And we've learned that Christ was tempted in every manner that we are, at least categorically, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. But there's a fable about special categories of sin. Meaning there are special ones that not every person experiences. And it's used as an attempt to deflect criticism and accountability for sinful behavior. Not each of us has sinned in every single way. Right? And it's a suggestion... That if you haven't experienced my particular bent, my favorite temptation, let's put it that way, if you haven't experienced what I've experienced, then you can't criticize me for it. You hear that? It's on TV all the time. You haven't experienced it. You don't know what it's like to be me. You haven't lived my life. Keep in mind, Christians don't condemn. God condemns. But Christians realize throughout Scripture we are commanded to discern and to judge what is good and what is evil. Repeatedly. Matthew 7 warns us not to do so hypocritically. Judge not lest ye be judged, right? 
And Jesus goes on to explain, to explain there that we're to get the log out of our own eye before assisting the person who has the speck in their eye. Correct? But scripturally, Christians are to be very mindful of assessing what is sin, what is not sin, what is evil, what is good, and assessing a behavior that can be damaging to the local church. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, it says, in reaction, this is to a so-called brother who's been caught in immorality, engaged in sexual immorality. The Apostle Paul instructs the church to remove the wicked man from among you. All the while he's saying, do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? He says, clean out the old leaven. So what Paul is telling the church there, you have to deal with blatant outright sin, that which is being flaunted, because if you don't, then everybody's going to come to the conclusion it's acceptable behavior. So he said, clean out the leaven. And at, the, and at that point, you can read this, as I said, all in First, uh, first Corinthians chapter 5, Paul continues by instructing the church to not associate with any so-called brother who is immoral, not to even eat with him. That's tough language. Don't hear that read in churches a lot today. That's a professing Christian who is living a blatantly immoral lifestyle. Don't even eat with him, he said. But at the same time, Paul acknowledges we must associate with those outside of the church the immoral, the idolatrous, the swindling drunkards in society, in the workplace, in the school, we have to in order to proclaim the mercies of God. So we have to associate them with them in order to win them, God willing, to Christ. But folks, the expansion of the seeker-driven church model, just to grow the church, no matter what the consequences are, have resulted in, in an increasing creep an incoming, a creep of just unconverted unbelievers who are never questioned, never confronted on sin, never talked to about reconciliation to God. Uh, in fact, so many are just making the churches look as much like the world as they can to draw as many people as they can. So there's a lot of unbelievers in local congregations. There always have been. It's always been a mixture. And there's an idea that if they're there are sinners, you can't hold them accountable or judge them unless you've experienced the identical situation. It's said that uh, because you don't understand, you haven't walked in their shoes, apparently you're not permitted to speak to a particular sin. So, so many of the churches today have just become silent. They haven't talked about the different sins. It's proposed, you know, you, you just don't understand. That's what we're told. You don't understand. You don't understand my family history. You don't understand my loneliness. You don't understand my urges that I have. You haven't walked a mile in my shoes. You haven't lived where I live. And you can see how this has been very effective in silencing churches. Very effective, uh, especially in seeker-driven churches of our day. They simply don't speak to sins. And you can pick out any, a bunch of them. But homosexuality... They say, you haven't experienced what I've experienced or the loneliness that I've experienced. You don't know my sin. Or cohabitation. You could have any number of sins that all of us, in one way or another, types of different sins have dealt with. Here's an appropriate response to that. We understand. We know. Jesus understands. He knows. 
Each of us here understands lustful thoughts, thoughts of anger, thoughts of covetousness. We understand greed. We've experienced uh, these, these lures, these temptations. We understand deceit, bearing false witness, blaspheming the name of God. We understand. Who here hasn't experienced living life in the flesh? Anyone? Jesus experienced the same thing. He knows what you're going through. He knows what we are going through. So, no one gets to a special dispensation to, to embrace a personal sinful bent that, that um, nobody else can speak to as if you might have a, a little exclusive corner on your type of sin that nobody else can understand. We understand, according to Scripture, there's not any sinful urge that you have been gripped by that isn't common to the rest of us. You just want to remain gripped to it. It's just common. 1 Corinthians 10.13 from our scripture reading earlier. No temptation has overtaken you. Remember, he's speaking to Corinth. One of the most immoral, unrighteous churches that were there. One of the most carnal churches that existed in the early church. And he tells them, No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful who will allow you to be tempted, will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide a way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it. That temptation that continues to plague you, maybe you feel some self-pity about it. Why I'm, you know, in a different situation than everyone else. You think as if you're the only one that's dealing with. It's just common. It's just common. We're told to resist. Christ came to conquer that which is common. Through the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit, He has given us the ability to overcome that which is common and to resist sin. If you, if you have no ability to resist sin, no desire, no yearning to become cleaner or pure before God, to be more pleasing in His sight, not because it earns us points, but because it's the pattern that Christ set out for us. If you don't have any desire to be holy, any desire to put your past behind you, it's possible you're not a believer. We'd like to present to you the gospel. That is that Christ did endure our sins on the cross. He was tempted in the flesh every way that we are. He did suffer and bear our sins in his body on the cross. And he did die. He rose on the third day. He was, so, he was seen, folks, by over 500 people at once. There were eyewitnesses that touched his flesh. That saw him resurrected. Saw his glory. And he has promised he will come again to judge the living and the dead. And folks... If you've never trusted in that, if you've never believed that, if you've never had any success in conquering sin to, to at least some point, please, folks, please trust in Christ as your Savior. Scripture promises He will give, he will give 
The Spirit without measure. He gave it to Christ. That will give victory over sin, over the death that plagues us and continues to plague us still. Will, still, will we be perfect in this, in this life? No. But we'll fight. We'll strive. We'll struggle. And we'll overcome by His grace. Let's pray. Father, as we reside in this, this body and uh, hourly are tested by the flesh, by the sin that so easily entangles us, Lord, it destroys not only our lives, but the lives of those around us. Father, as, as we've each done more than our share. And Father, even as Christians, we have more than our share of struggles. We have more than our share of enticements, and we even fail. Yet Father, you have overcome through your Son. You have, Lord, conquered everything that we have in common. And as Christ walked this earth in perfect obedience, Father, we pray you'll give us strength to do the same, that our families would be spared that particular bent that we have. Father, that sin that we've, in our minds, decided to justify that we think nobody else understands, yet you understand, and you know. Father, we pray uh, for victory in our lives and through the church. Lord, that we would be increasingly uh, more pure in your eyes, more pleasing as a reflection of Christ and all that he did for us. Father. And as we think uh, going ahead, Lord, of, of uh, the different opportunities to proclaim the mercies of God and uh, the truth of Christ and the gospel, Lord, whether that would be in Naples in a team going there, Lord, uh, those who have been uh, bitten by a hurricane, Father, that uh, each place we'd go, we would have uh, the praise of Jesus on our lips, and that your Holy Spirit would go ahead of us and convict people of their sins. And Lord, that we'd be courageous enough to tell them the truth. Lord, that there's one way. As Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. And Father, may we declare that way shamelessly for his glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.